Again, I want to welcome you this morning. I think I introduced myself earlier. If I didn't, my name is Adam. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we're excited that you're here for what is, for us, week four of a series called The Five Solas, that we've entitled The Five Solas. Um, that comes from um, these five statements. They're in Latin there. Um, as a way to commemorate and to celebrate and to remember um, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, which took place exactly 500 years ago. is Actually, I guess if you wanted to give it an official date, like anything in history, it's always hard to give something an official beginning date. But if we had to for the Protestant Reformation, it would be October 31st, 1517. And so this is an opportunity for us to just kind of commemorate an event that not only shaped the trajectory of Christianity around the world, but in many aspects shaped the trajectory of Western civilization. Um, and it was all based around, while we mostly give credit to a guy named Martin Luther, but um, several individuals who decided that, hey, you know what, rather than relying on someone else, I'm going to go straight to the source. And, and this idea that I don't have to go through another person or another system or a group of people to get to God, that God has made himself available to us and exploring how that's possible. And so these five statements, while in Latin, and that's simply to honor and to uh, kind of have fun with the fact that these early reformers um, were spoke and wrote in Latin to a great degree, not solely. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so this is just a, a fun way to kind of commemorate that. But these statements represent how the Reformers began to explore and understand how we relate to and meet with God. And so week one, we talked sola scriptura, which is Latin for scripture alone, that, that we go to the scriptures as our ultimate and final authority not someone else, not a committee of people, not a system, but to the Scriptures. Um, the last couple weeks we talked about um, grace alone, sola gratia, uh, and then faith alone, sola fide, um, which is how we can come to a holy God because of His grace, and the gateway to that grace is faith. And so we, we kind of spent a week talking just about how essentially wretched we are and undeserving, but it's because of God's grace that he has made himself available to us. Last week we talked about um, accessing that grace through faith, and really what is faith? What is a biblical definition of faith? That it's not just this mere, oh, I, believe, I, I recognize and acknowledge a list of historical facts. Um, but it's much deeper, and it's not just about our heads, it's about our hearts as well. And today we're going to talk and hit the point, solus Christus, which means Christ alone. Now earlier we read from Acts chapter 4, when Peter um, is standing before some religious leaders who are upset because he had just um, performed a miracle on this uh, individual, and uh, they're wondering how it happened and why. And we read Peter's response that it was through the power of Jesus that this man was healed. But then Peter kind of sh shifts focus and says, but it's also through the power of Jesus by which we're saved. 
And he switches it from just from this crippled guy who had been healed to let's turn the focus on what really matters and, and makes that statement that there's no other name by which we are saved. Jesus said it this way in John 14, verse 6. And it said, And Jesus said to them, For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That it's only through Christ that we gain access to God. Now here's what I want us to do this morning. Um, we're going to take a look at three scriptures primarily in the book of Hebrews. Um, and the book of Hebrews in your New Testament uh, is written primarily to a kind of Jewish, Jewish Christian audience. Uh, in the first century, to a group of people who believed and read and understood and embraced the Old Testament, which is roughly two-thirds of your Bible, that which was written before Jesus, um, and were in great expectation and hope that God was going to fulfill his promises that he had made in the Old Testament, and that God was going to fix the problem that we brought in through sin. And that ultimately God was going to bring restoration. And so they were hoping for that and waiting for that um, as Jesus came as the Jewish fulfillment of that promise that God made in the Jewish scriptures and opened the door so that it was not limited to just the Jews, but to all people through faith. So the author of Hebrews is essentially writing a book about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all those old promises. And he walks through helping a, a, a person who had been working really hard at trying to get to God and waiting and waiting and waiting for God to fulfill his promises, helping them to see how Jesus is in fact the answer. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the unique ways in which the author of Hebrews is going to paint this picture of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, and really, without directly saying it, kind of painting this picture of why Christ had to come. Because some of us may have wondered before, okay, so we sinned, God loves us, he wants to forgive us, can't he just forgive us? Like, did Christ actually have to come? Did Christ actually have to die? And the author of Hebrews is going to paint this picture of why it was so important that Jesus was who he became in coming and becoming man and what he has done. So there's going to be three main scriptures. If you have your Bible app open to the Element Church Live events, then those three are already laid out for you. Or you can follow along with me as I read them. And the first one we're going to look at is in Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14. And it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power, has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. We're going to explain a few of those phrases uh, here in a minute. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being 
tempted. So let's break this down into some smaller pieces, all right? Um, so at the beginning of that section, um, the author of Hebrews begins talking, since the children, and, and this is just a euphemism for uh, those who believe, all right? If you go backwards in chapter 2, you get that, that picture. We're just catching him mid-conversation. So when he says that, it's just kind of a euphemism for those who believe. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, in the Bible, um, one of the things that it talks about frequently, we've mentioned this even multiple times in our series of the five solas together, that, that slavery is often um, proportioned to slavery. That you and I, apart from divine intervention, are in slavery because of and to sin. The Bible has a lot of ways to talk about our personal condition before God intervenes on our behalf, that we are dead in our trespasses. If you remember us reading that um, from Ephesians chapter 2, that we are by nature children of wrath from Ephesians chapter 2. We read that, that we are enslaved to sin. And here the author of Hebrews adds in death. That you and I, apart from God doing something on our behalf, are dead, enslaved, children of wrath, and under this power of death. That's our condition. And so the author of Hebrews begins to paint this picture that Jesus becomes flesh and blood so that he can begin to take on the very opponents that we face because we are living in the flesh. Jesus becomes like us so that he can begin to tackle and to conquer what it is that we are unable to overcome. He, the author is going to continue to go on. He said, verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That is a very Jewish way. you got to remember the author of Hebrews is writing primarily to a Jewish slash Jewish Christian audience. The, this, this idea of being a child of Abraham is a very Jewish way of understanding your place in life and in this world. And, and in many aspects, it's, it's really talking about being a people of God, the people of God. And he says, surely Jesus wasn't coming to earth to serve the angels. And it's still this idea of flesh and blood. He was coming here to, to do something for those who are here. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Now this is a theme that's going to run throughout the book of Hebrews for quite a while. Again, let's put our minds into a Jewish perspective. All right. Now I recognize none of us are from the first century. As much as I know you, I don't think any of you are ethnically Jewish in this room. I know some people who are ethnically Jewish. I don't think any of you are. Otherwise, I'm sure I would know because you would have told me. Um, so we have to place ourselves in that mindset. So in the first century, the role of a high priest was to work in service to God on behalf of the people. His job was to offer sacrifices and offerings 
in order to bring about forgiveness for the people of God. So he was here to serve. The high priest was there to serve God on behalf of the people to help offer sacrifices to help people be reconciled back to God temporarily. Of course, those sacrifices were only good for sins they had already committed. And that was the problem. Because you can go to the temple and you can offer a sacrifice, or the priest will do it on your behalf. You can give offerings of all different sorts and kinds. The Old Testament is full of descriptions of different ways to do that. But in the end, while that may bring some temporary forgiveness, the moment you leave and sin again, you're in trouble. Because those sacrifices were only good for your sins that you had already committed. Now, the author of Hebrews wants to introduce this idea to us that Jesus has become like us so that he could become a faithful high priest on our behalf. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. That's a big word that means to remove the wrath of for the sins of the people, to to remove God's wrath over sin that all of us face. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That that idea is going to lead us into our next scripture of Hebrews. And we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 4. Starting in verse 14, the author is going to keep up this idea of Jesus being a high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So he paints this picture of us, of of how Jesus serves as a high priest. And one aspect of that, by Jesus becoming flesh and blood, he understands our weaknesses. He understands what it is that we suffer and are challenged by. And this is good news for us. Because now we have a heavenly high priest, one who acts on our behalf for God, one who offers a sacrifice for us, but our high priest is able to understand our weaknesses. And here's the conclusion that the author of Hebrews makes here. That should give us boldness and confidence to approach what he says is the throne of grace. That means that we, you and I should have confidence and boldness when we come before God. Not arrogance, not pride, but confidence. And there's a big difference. We don't come to God with arrogance and pride thinking we're good enough, that we've done enough, that we're hardworking enough. We come with confidence knowing we're not, but he understands it. I'm sure all of us have been at that place in our lives where we were scared to come to God. 
And we may not admit it, but it's it's kind of just wired in who we are, right? If you have kids, you understand how this works. Or, and this is strange, if you have a really smart dog, perhaps you understand how this works. Because we now have a dog, which is a big victory in my house, but that's a different sermon for a different day, um, who, who does the same thing. When your kids make do something wrong, right? They hide. Maybe you've got a dog who does the same thing, right? He, he got in something he knows he's not supposed to, and as soon as you walk upstairs or whatever, tucks his tail, bows his head, he's trying to sneak out, right? But your kids instinctively know, without having to be taught, when I'm guilty, I should hide. When I've done something wrong, I should hide. We do that with God. When we feel guilty, our natural tendency is to hide. And we hide through, we avoid relationships that maybe you know the other person is connected and engaged with God and it's almost like you're scared that they'll see it in you. So you avoid relationships of other people who, who you know are, 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 are spiritual. You'll avoid environments that you might feel convicted or exposed. And probably more than anything, you'll avoid prayer. Because it's easier to hide than to face up to it. But what the author of Hebrews wants us to know is we don't approach God with arrogance or pride, but, and we don't approach with shame. We approach with confidence. Because we have one who works on our behalf, yet knows, yet understands. That, as he says in verse 15, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And what the author of Hebrews is doing, he's starting to paint this picture for us. Why did Jesus have to come? Couldn't God have just said, forget it. All right, I'll forgive him. Done. Aside from the philosophical point that if God were to do that, he would not be a just God. To say that there can be treason committed and I'll ignore it, means that maybe he's a very forgiving God, but he wouldn't be a just God. So aside from the philosophical point of the justice of God had to be satisfied, the author of Hebrews wants us to understand that there's a different relational aspect to why Jesus had to come. Let's jump on to Hebrews chapter 7. I want to look at verse 23. We'll start at verse 3. So now he's going to jump back to this idea of priesthood. He's going to talk about former priests. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, the great high priest, Jesus, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses, in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So previous priests, and the high priest is, an, is a title. It's, a, it's the, the senior executive priest, if you will, of the group. And, and, and the author here says, listen, here's what's different between our great high priest and all the priests that have ever come before him. One is there had to be a lot of priests because eventually they die. Eventually their ability to serve God and work on behalf of his people Eventually, that ability runs out. They're a temporary solution. And the other difference is, what they have to do is they actually have to offer two sacrifices. One, they have to offer a sacrifice for themselves, for their own sin. Then they can offer a sacrifice on behalf of someone else. But our high priest is different. Our high priest is different because his ability to intercede on our behalf never ends. It never ends. We'll never need another priest because his ministry continues on forever. And he had no need to offer multiple sacrifices, one after the other, after the other, year after year after year. He offered one that was sufficient for all. He didn't have to offer one on it for himself because he was innocent and blameless and holy and perfect. And he offered one sacrifice and one sacrifice only because unlike any and all other sacrifices, this one was complete. This one was perfect. This one was sufficient to not only remove God's wrath over previous sins, it was even enough to remove God's wrath over future sins. So Jesus becomes this interesting sort of paradox. He is, at, on one hand, the high priest who offers a sacrifice on our behalf, one who intercedes on our behalf before God. But on the opposite end, he is the sacrifice. Jesus said in John, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. When Jesus was being arrested the night before his crucifixion, Peter pulled out a sword. He was ready to fight, defend Jesus. Peter told him to put it away. And said, don't you think I could call a legion of angels if I wanted to? Standing before Pilate, in his trial, 
as Pilate was going to determine what to do with Jesus, whether he would set him free or execute him, Pilate was getting frustrated because he didn't want to execute Jesus. But Jesus wouldn't give him the answer he needed to let him go free. And he finally looked at Jesus and said, Don't you know that I have the power to set you free and I have the power to kill you? And Jesus looked at him and said, You don't have any power that wasn't given to you. And who gave him that power? Colossians said that all things were made through him and by him and for him. Jesus looked at Pilate and said, essentially, you don't have any power to do anything that I didn't give you. As the high priest, he not only made a sacrifice for us, one that was perfect, that would never need to be replaced, as the high priest, one who exists forever so we never need another, he and he alone is sufficient to intercede on our behalf. Not only was he the great high priest, he became the great sacrifice, laying down his life for us. There is a really good devotional book. Um, It actually goes by two different titles. Um, One of them is titled um, 50 Reasons Why Jesus uh, Came to Die uh, by John Piper. If you want this book, you can have it for free in a digital download. In the Bible app, there's a link. I put the link in the Bible app. All you got to do is click it. You don't even have to give them your email or your phone number or anything. You can download this for free. If you want it in paperback, then you actually do have to pay for it. And for whatever reason, it goes by a different name in paperback form, but it's the exact same book. Um, And this one, The Passion of Jesus Christ, you can get on Amazon. I think it's like six or seven dollars. But here's what's great is There's 50 chapters, but most of the chapters are like two pages or a page. Essentially, it's like a 50-day devotional on why Jesus had to come and die. And I'd encourage you to download. I encourage you to read it. If you don't regularly read your Bible or you're looking for something new, this is a great devotional that you could just spend, I don't know, it'd take three or four minutes, maybe five minutes to read, and then a, a, a few minutes for prayer and reflection. But, but this is a great way to engage the Scriptures and to, to really engage your mind outside of this one hour together we have on Sunday mornings. So if you want that, that resource is for free, and, and you can download it uh, through the Bible app. Or if you don't have the Bible app, you can always Google uh, the title, either The Passion of Jesus Christ or 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. I just want to read to you the chapter headings from this book. As we think about Christ alone, Solus Christus, that there is no other name by which we may be saved because there has never been a sacrifice so perfect and never a high priest, never this this one to intercede on our behalf in a way that would never end. This is what the Bible would say about it, but these are the chapter headings of this book. And then each chapter sort of gives a, a Bible verse and then some discussion. 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. To absorb the wrath of God. That's the propitiation word that we were talking about earlier. To please His heavenly Father. To learn obedience and be perfected. 
to achieve his own resurrection from the dead, to show the wealth of God's love and grace for sinners, to show his own love for us, to cancel the legal demands of the law against us, to become a ransom for many, for the forgiveness of our sins, to provide the basis for our justification. That's a word that means to be made right before God. To complete the obedience that becomes our righteousness. To take away our condemnation. To abolish circumcision and all rituals as the basis of salvation. To bring us to faith and keep us faithful. To make us holy, blameless, and perfect. To give us a clear conscience. To obtain for us all the things that are good for us to heal us from moral and physical sickness, to give eternal life to all who believe on him, to deliver us from the present evil age, to reconcile us to God, to bring us to God so that we might belong to him, to give us confident access to the holiest place, to become for us the place where we meet God, to bring the Old Testament priesthood to an end and become the eternal high priest to become a sympathetic and helpful priest, to free us from the brutality of our ancestry, to free us from the slavery of sin, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, so that we would die to the law and bear fruit for God, to enable us to live for Christ and not ourselves, to make his cross the ground of all our boasting, to enable us to live by faith in him, to give marriage its deepest meaning, to create a people passionate for good works, to call us to follow his example of lowliness and costly love, to create a band of crucified followers, to free us from bondage to the fear of death, so that we would be with him immediately after death, to secure our resurrection from the dead, to disarm the rulers and authorities, to unleash the power of God and the gospel, to destroy the hostility between races, to ransom people from every tribe and language and people and nation, to gather all his sheep from around the world, to rescue us from final judgment, to gain his joy and ours, so that he would be crowned with glory and honor, and finally, to show that the worst evil is meant by God for good. Christ and Christ alone, it's a foundation of who we are what we believe and what the Scriptures teach, that there is no other name by which we may be saved. There is no other religious system that will ever bring what Christ has come and made available to us. That God's grace is not found in anyone but Christ. And that's why we're here to celebrate. Philippians chapter 2 we often refer to it as the Christ hymn. Uh, this, this hymn about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. And Paul's conclusion to who Jesus is and what he has done is that there is no greater name, that God has given no one a greater name than Jesus, so that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue confess. That's why we're here. We're here because of Christ and Christ alone. We're not here because we're trying to be better and do better. 
Certainly, that is a result of what Christ works in us. We're not here to impress God, to accomplish something for God. We're here to celebrate the powerful name that makes all of this available to us because there's only one name that makes it available, and it's not yours, and it's not mine. We're here to celebrate the person and the work of Jesus through which we are saved and where we find God's grace. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for this time, this opportunity to worship, to celebrate who you are and what you've done, to lift your name high. And God, as we lift your name high, I hope that we're humbled and lowered so that it's less and less about us and more and more about you. Just as John the Baptist said, I must decrease, he must increase. Jesus, would you make that a reality in our hearts today? Would you come and do that very thing in our hearts today? Would you cause us to rise up to celebrate who you are and what you've done as sufficient? I want you to keep your eyes closed for a moment. We're entering into a time of response. A time to reflect and then act on what God is speaking into your heart in this moment. And there's a number of ways that you can respond. Just a few examples may be you just stay seated where you're at in prayer and meditation. Reflecting on all that Christ has done on your behalf that you could not do for yourself. Maybe you sit there and you pray and you ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, help me to decrease. Would you increase in my life? Maybe responding right now in this moment looks for you like you stand and you lift your hands and you celebrate and you lift high the name of Jesus and you worship him. Maybe it looks like you go back to the communion table as a way to worship and honor and remember the sacrifice that he has made for us. The one great final sacrifice on the night before his death, Jesus having that final supper with his disciples broke some bread and said, this now represents my body which is broken for you. He took a cup and he said, this now represents my blood which is poured out for you. And for the last 2,000 years, followers of Christ have been taking the bread and taking the cup as a way to remember his great sacrifice. And the elements of communion are back there on the table available for you. Maybe you need to take the hand of a friend or even someone you don't know that well and say, I need prayer. I need someone to talk to. I'm more than happy and honored to pray and to talk with you. If, if you need someone else, there are many others who would love to and, and have the experience and confidence to pray for you and talk to you in this moment. But this is an opportunity for you to respond to who Jesus is and what he's done. And maybe, 
Maybe for you, you've never given him your heart and your life. And maybe this is that moment where you say, Jesus, I believe. I give you my life. I ask that you would forgive me of my sins, that your death on the cross would become my sacrifice. Jesus, will you come into my life and change me? Lead me, guide me. I give all of myself to you. Maybe for you in this moment, this is the first time you make that confession, you make that prayer. And the Bible says when you do that, that is when you, what the Bible would call, become saved. When God saves you from the slavery to sin, from that fear of death. He saves you from living a life with no purpose. And he saves you from living a life with no power. And maybe in this moment, this is that moment that you cry out to him. Lord Jesus, would you be honored by what we say, do, think, sing, and pray in this moment as we celebrate you, as we lift you high. As we beg, let us decrease so that you can increase in our lives.